Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo in the Score Studios with fellow co-host Joe Wolfond. How do you do? I do well. It's a little snowy here in Toronto, but um, yeah, things in general going well. Can't blame Kawhi for leaving, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. 15 centimeters of snow in early November. It's yeah. tough luck. Six inches, 15 centimeters, a lot of snow in uh, the northeast of North America, and not a lot of snow, I'm going to assume, in Los Angeles, California. Now, we've got a lot to dissect and get to from the weekend. You know, we did, I think it was a couple weeks ago, we kind of did like a wrap and reaction to what we called the first crazy night of the NBA season. This was definitely the first crazy weekend of the NBA season, so I don't really know where else to begin, but with a salacious story. Like, I don't know how to explain this. Deion Waiters has been suspended 10 games without pay by the Miami Heat for conduct detrimental to the team. Again, after I believe he was suspended opening night for conduct detrimental to the team. And this time it's because he took a gummy edible THC on a flight from I don't know where they were coming from on the way to LA ended up having a panic attack because it sounds like he tripped out now at first it sounded a lot scarier because it was reported as him having seizures it turns out apparently that wasn't the case just had a panic attack still obviously a very serious scary issue he's been suspended 10 games I don't even like what do you have to say about this I mean first off without delving into too many specifics i'll just say i've been there (laughs) and it sucks like listen edibles are no joke and panic attacks are no joke either honestly it's not really the kind of thing that just goes away it's there's kind of like a fog i think that can hang over you for a few days afterwards so i guess the first thing i will say is i just i hope that dion is doing all right i guess the next thing i would say is I mean, he hasn't played a game this season, right? Like like you said, he got suspended before the season started, I think on like the last day of the preseason. And um, he, he never made it back into the rotation in large part because of the emergence of Tyler Hero and Kendrick Nunn. And they haven't particularly needed him. He's had a tough go with injuries. I know at a certain point he wasn't playing because he wasn't in shape. And obviously the Heat have extremely draconian standards when it comes to their players fitness levels and so now he's suspended for 10 games and i don't this is one of the things i'm wondering is this is a team issued suspension do you think that there would be an additional suspension from the nba because he is in violation of the nba's anti-drug policy right thc i believe is is banned it is but this wasn't something that was discovered by the nba right it's not like he failed a league mandated drug test so will they allow the heat to just sort of handle this internally he's already gotten the team issued suspension will they leave well enough alone or knowing essentially that he ingested thc knowingly on a team flight will they step in and issue their own separate punishment here that's one of the things i'm wondering and i'm not really sure how that would work but i feel like waiters might be done in Miami like I don't know if we'll see him play for the heat again I don't know it just seems like maybe the situation is too far gone at this point in time and and I don't know if it can be remedied I hope that it can like for his sake but I don't know I don't know where this leaves him yeah and it's a tricky thing to talk about because obviously we don't know what the status of Deion Waiters 
current well-being is like mentally you know again at first when it was first reported as seizures too it's the kind of thing like no one wanted to joke about it clearly because it, it sounded like a serious health issue and honestly maybe a mental health issue but at this point it's just so hard to make like was it just a guy popping an edible thinking out oh, let's have some fun and screwing up because if that's the case like yeah you kind of clown yourself bro like you know you're already in hot water with the team that's paying you and paying you a lot more than your play deserves you're already in hot water with them and now you're gonna go and like take an edible on the team plane and spaz out well it should be noted I think it was Brian Windhorst who reported that he got it from somebody else I on think, the team yeah I think Shams also reported that and that's where I was gonna go next yeah. So you were mentioning, you know, a big question is whether the NBA will take action after the Heat already have. Another big question, and I know it sounds kind of funny to talk about, but it's a legitimate question is, will we find out which teammate gave him the edible? Because no, like there are, there are actual potential ramifications there. Like that teammate could be facing discipline both by the team and potentially the league. Then there's the whole thing is, again, I myself joked about it on Twitter, but even just the whole like, does Dion Waiters want to be labeled a snitch and tell the Heat who it was? They're saying he doesn't want to do that. He doesn't want to get anyone else in trouble. Does this player maybe come forward, right? And say, look, I'm the one who gave it to him. My bad. I shouldn't have done it. Like, no chance. <laughs> You're saying no chance that guy comes forward? I don't think so. So it's either Dion snitches or we just never, the Heat never find out who, who gave him the... I mean, I don't know. I guess it depends how serious they are about actually finding out who did it. And if they want to conduct like an investigation where they interrogate everybody on the team and try to get to the bottom of it, then I suppose they could. I just feel like they'd probably rather put this behind them. But maybe not. I mean, maybe if they're concerned about it happening again, like they really want to root this out, then they will. I guess my point when, in bringing that up was just this clearly is not the first time that an NBA employee has popped a gummy no. on a team flight. I, I'm sure it, it happens a lot. And like, I'm sure lots of players in the NBA smoke weed or otherwise ingest THC. And I mean, I guess my feeling about that is, yeah, this looks really bad on Dion Waiters, but also it seems like the issue is that he just happened to have a freak out at the wrong time and, and not necessarily the fact that he was taking this gummy in the first place because like I said I'm sure it's happening and I don't know I personally don't consider it a big deal and like I it's not like players are banned from drinking alcohol like and this is obviously a much broader conversation but I don't necessarily think that THC should be on the NBA's banned substance list but I, that's the NBA's decision to make I guess so if you're taking those substances then i guess you're doing it knowing that there could be repercussions and that's why waiters finds himself in the situation he's in yeah i i, I don't have a problem with anyone doing edibles professional athletes or otherwise but going back to the whole teammate thing the reason why i do think it is a very fascinating piece of this whole puzzle is that the heat took quite a stance by suspending the waiters 10 games without pay you know, and I know it's probably a little bit of the fact that it's his second strike this season. But still, that's a big financial punishment that they've handed down to him. And so, if they're going to make that kind of heavy-handed decision, it seems odd to me that they would say that. They'd say, look, you taking a gummy on the team plane is worth this. 
without then also finding out and going after who supplied the gummy and whose idea was to actually bring them on the team plane, right? Again, like yeah. I don't think either is actually a big deal, but if you're going to take the stance that this is worth 10 games, then you probably got to find out who and punish who brought the gummy and supplied it on the team plane. Well, I just think that if this hadn't happened in the sort of public and somewhat embarrassing way that it did where there was basically a medical emergency on their team plane they might have just been willing to look the other way and i know the heat maybe aren't the best example of an organization that would do that because of their reputation for being extremely buttoned up and professional in all the ways that they are but i just feel like in it in typical circumstances like i don't know that the team would care enough about this or want to make a big deal about this especially in a public way uh, that they would make a point of conducting an investigation or trying to get to the bottom of it. I feel like, at least from where I sit, it's innocuous enough that if you're a team, you'd probably just rather handle it in-house. And maybe it's a couple game suspension for conduct detrimental to the team, and there's no explanation given, which often happens. But it kind of stops there. But I don't know. I, I, I can't you know get inside the heads of the Miami Heat brass, and I don't know what they're thinking about this, and whether... Even from a PR perspective, they they think that it would be acceptable for them to just move on without doing their due diligence. Yeah. I mean, I guess until we get more answers, there's not much left to discuss about the Dion Waiters gummy fiasco. So let's talk about some NBA basketball. Actually, no. Let's talk about the Knicks first. <laughs> let's talk about the New York Knicks first before we talk about NBA basketball. And the New York Knicks, ladies and gentlemen, ever the providers of fabulous content, they are now 2-8. and eight. They got spanked at home by the lowly, but not as low as them, Cleveland Cavaliers. Not so lowly so not, far yeah, this season. We were just talking about this on air. They've been kind of feisty, and, and you know, there's reasons for a little bit of cautious optimism in Cleveland, but st- I'd still consider them a lowly team. Yeah. And definitely too low of a team to be spanking anyone on the opposition's home court. So embarrassing performance from the Knicks. They're 2-8. and eight. Shouldn't be all that surprising, given the roster that President Steve Mills and General Manager Scott Perry put together. And yet, after this embarrassing loss to the Cavs on Sunday, again, only 10 games into an 82-game season, when anyone with half a basketball brain could have told you the Knicks were going to stink this year, Steve Mills, with Scott Perry behind them, holds an impromptu press conference to not really make any decision or tell us anything we don't know other than to say that they are disappointed essentially in the team's performance so far and that they don't believe the team is performing up to the expectations of this roster to which I laughed hysterically for a very long time on Sunday and then I laughed some more because what <laughs> this is listen, it was already enough of a clown show when Mills in the preseason made the comments about how the offseason actually kind of went exactly as they planned and that you know they could have had meetings with other max free agents once they were turned down I guess by KD and Kawhi and those guys but they decided to go this route it's always a clown show with James Dolan's Knicks but this is just like what I guess I'll just say I don't think that Steve Mills and Scott Perry were the ones who made the decision to address the media with this impromptu press conference. It seemed like there was probably some pressure being put on them by James Dolan to do so. And 
somewhat similar to the statement that they put out on the first day of free agency when they whiffed on the free agent targets that they had been so widely reported as having a great shot at landing. It just seems like whatever they think they're accomplishing with these public statements and apologies or, I guess, explanations to their fans, I don't think they're having their intended effect. And obviously, you know, David Fisdale here felt like he was maybe being thrown under the bus a little bit and that these comments were not so indirectly pointing to him. And Fisdale came out and when he spoke to the media, he said, I live in that sense of urgency. I don't need anyone to speak to give me a sense of urgency. I'm not cruising through this thing, acting like I've got a bunch of time to get a team together. And then the Knicks players also came out and spoke up in in support of Fisdale. Uh, And Ian Begley also reported that while discussions haven't necessarily happened to this effect, nothing has been ruled out in regards to front office or coaching changes. So I, I don't really have much to add to what you said. This is obviously a mess, but one that was entirely created by Nick's management and their front office. And like life is all about managing expectations. And if you went into this season thinking that it was going to be a stopgap year, a developmental year for RJ Barrett, that the results didn't necessarily matter, you missed on your free agent targets, you roll it over and you try and do it again in 2021, which is basically what they did with the short-term contracts. And as much as the roster they put together was counterintuitive and somewhat ridiculous, there's some rationale in the fact that they kept their cap sheet clean in 2021, have a chance to develop guys like Barrett and Mitchell Robinson, see what they have, maybe hit on one of these eight power forwards that they signed. Maybe one of them, like Julius Randle, ends up being part of the plan going forward. And you take your lumps along the way. Like, if that is your expectation, then you don't have to be here sitting at two and eight apologizing to your fans because you thought you were going to be better than this. I don't think the Knicks fans thought they were going to be better than this. Like, look at the lineup that they rolled out in that game against the Cavs. Like, they started Neil Aquina, Barrett, Randle, Morris, and Taj Gibson. Uh, Like, where is the spacing coming from in that lineup? Where is the playmaking coming from? Like... It, they have the worst point guard rotation in the league for like the 11th year They have in a the row. worst almost everything in the league. Not only do they not have enough talent right now, but the roster just doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. And I think they've seen a lot of encouraging progress from Barrett. And, you know, Mitchell Robinson has had his moments, but they're not being put in an environment where they can really succeed right now. And whatever, Th- that... I think should have been insanely predictable given the way their offseason played out. Yeah. The the mark of a really terrible sports executive is often when they are the only person or the only front office, the only collection of minds on the planet that seem to buy into their own team, right? And then this year's Knicks and a lot of years' Knicks are a classic example of that where it seems like James Dolan and Steve Mills, or at least one of them, probably Dolan, but also Mills. Like, Mills is a clown, too. This guy shouldn't have his job. He's You look at the track record since he's been with the Knicks, like, what has he done and why does he still have this job? But that's neither here nor there. In general, one and or both of James Dolan and Steve Mills thought this team should be competitive. And if you look at this roster in 2019 and think they're going to compete in the NBA. 
even if you, I mean compete as like play 400 basketball. I think if you even expected that from this roster, you are so far out to lunch and have no business being around a professional basketball team. It's not funny. And yet, there's James Dolan, obviously still owning the Knicks, can't fire the owner. There's Steve Mills, somehow still running the basketball side of things. I don't even know what Scott Perry does, although he came highly recommended. What it's, it's just a complete gong show. I, I don't have a whole lot else to add. I just I, I think that some teams are bad. Like it's a zero sum league. Every year there are going to be bad teams, and there are ways to spin that. I think in a positive way. And if you had to come out and like make the statement of the media, then. I think you want to focus on the positive things rather than expressing disappointment with where you're at and like, you know, not so subtly point fingers at the the guy who's standing on the sideline. Like, look in the mirror. Who put this team together? What is David Fisdale supposed to do with this roster? I, I honestly don't know. So There are no mirrors at Madison Square Garden <laughs> when it comes to ownership and the front office, right? The only mirrors they have are like the mirrors that take like 20 pounds off. So they're always looking at an image they want to see and not the image the rest of the world sees is the best way to describe the Knicks front office. And honestly, the last thing I'm going to say about this debacle is that every player on that Knicks team and even David Fisdale deserves a complimentary gummy on the next team plane because they need to forget about some that's gone down. At uh, Madison Square Garden. I, yeah. I feel for R.J. Barrett and any young player entering that situation. But also be careful with gummies, guys. Yeah. Yeah. Because that sh- can mess you up. Yeah. Ask Dion. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For Soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download the Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. All right. Took almost 20 minutes, but now we're actually going to talk about NBA basketball. And we're going to start with the defending champions this week. We were going to talk about them before Sunday's game against the Lakers and just what the injuries to Kyle Lowry, fractured thumb, and Serge Ibaka, severely sprained ankle, what those injuries would mean um, to them maybe for the rest of the season. And honestly, how could that could impact the rest of the league? And then they went out and had, honestly, one of the most impressive performances by any team so far this season. Down Lowry and Ibaka in L.A. to take on LeBron and A.D. and the Lakers, who had won seven straight, had the number one defense, I believe, in the league coming into the game. Built, I think, on two different occasions in the first half, the Lakers built a double-digit lead. And the Raptors come roaring back with guys like Rondé Hollis-Jefferson, who hadn't played much yet this season, Matt Thomas... 
Undrafted rookie Terrence Davis. Norman Powell gave him some good minutes. Obviously, Pascal Siakam and Fred Van Vliet were great. OG Ananobi, who I know you want to talk about his defense on LeBron James, like got massive contributions from Chris all of those Boucher, guys. Chris Boucher, my friend. Chris Boucher. This dude was, and this is not, if you're listening in the States and have no idea what St. Hubert is, this everything I'm about to say Saint is Hubert. real. St. Hubert. St. Hubert. Everything I'm about to say is real. Chris Boucher. Good chicken. Great chicken. <laughs> less than a decade ago, was working in a St. Hubert, okay? Was working the kitchen in a Canadian chicken restaurant. And then less than a decade later is in the NBA playing for the defending champs and absolutely sunning LeBron James and Anthony Davis at the rim multiple times last night. This performance was almost inexplicable. It was riveting to watch, whether you're a Raptors fan or not. As long as you're not a Lakers fan, that game was crazy entertaining and made the Raptors really easy to root for last night. So what do you make of all this? Do you are, do you have any more belief in the Lowry-less, Ibaka-less Raptors than you did 48 hours ago simply because of one performance? Did you already have belief in them? Talk to me. I guess, I yeah, I mean, I do have a little bit more faith in them, I suppose. I don't know how much of this performance is going to be able to carry over, but I'll say I think that we got a glimpse of of how they're going to try and cobble together a rotation and a game plan to survive those absences. And that is, for one, like a lot of janky defensive schemes, a lot of zone defense, crazy energy, pinpoint defensive rotations, and I think more than anything, just dominant transition play. They were 32-8 to in fast break points against the Lakers and they absolutely crushed them in transition at both ends smothered the Lakers in transition Danny Green got none of those kind of stop and pop threes in transition that he usually feasts on and going the other way they absolutely shredded the Lakers and and Siakam obviously had a ton to do with that but it was a big question to me whether that transition attack was going to be able to survive without Lowry because he really has been the propeller that has made that on the break offense go and without him it looked just as good and the Raptors right now have the most efficient transition offense in the league they're scoring 1.33 points per possession in the open floor and so if they can keep that up then they're going to be able to hang with teams and I think even as they go deep into their bench and a lot of unheralded guys there like you mentioned pretty much all of them you know Terrence Davis Hollis Jefferson Chris Boucher those guys are going to have some off nights at the offensive end without a doubt but I have I guess more faith that their defense is going to be able to survive and as long as they can do that and their defense can fuel their offense and transition I think they're going to be able to tread water at the least their half court offense is a big concern for me and and that didn't necessarily change in this game as successful as they were running Terrence Davis RHJ pick and rolls down the end of that game and somehow succeeding time after time against the best defense in the league Lowry was already playing 39 minutes a game and he had been to my mind the second best point guard in the league behind a guy that we're going to talk about in a bit 66% true shooting so much of their offense obviously runs through him Uh, I talked about you know how good he'd been in transition and like his hit ahead passes to Siakam were a big part of that and also and I think you saw some of this with Siakam last night who as good as he was especially defensively had a pretty inefficient scoring night and 
he is going to have to be a much more self-reliant scorer now with Lowry out. And that's going to drag his efficiency down. Like he can do a lot of self-creation and that's been a huge part of the leap that he has made. But to me, he still works best as a guy who is a screener in the pick and roll or getting the ball on cuts and lobs, hit aheads in transition, posting up. If he is having to shoulder so much of the initiating duty and the playmaking responsibility, I think that's going to make things a little bit tougher on him and the Raptors' half-court offense as a whole. Yeah, I think the half-court offense will be a slog. I think they're going to go through stretches of games where it looks like they just can't score. And I think those are very real concerns without Kyle Lowry. I think Serge Ibaka was obviously very valuable off the bench. And the two-man game with Lowry and Ibaka, we know how that's dominated teams, benches or otherwise, over the last couple seasons. But the reason I thought the Raptors could at least survive two to three-ish weeks without Lowry, and he's going to be reevaluated in two weeks. We don't know how much longer, if, if any longer, it'll be than that. But the reason I thought they could survive, at least in the short term, was one... They still have the makings of an elite defense with the personnel they've got at their disposal. Pascal Siakam, though I do agree with you, is going to be less efficient with Lowry, is still capable of being the best player on the court on any given night. Now, that doesn't mean he's the best player in the NBA. It just means that he's good enough that on any given night, he could outplay another superstar. And that's a pretty good place to start from with an elite defense behind him. Nick Nurse, as we saw in Sunday's game against the Lakers, is a very creative problem solver. He thinks outside the box, as we know. And that helps a team that's going to be searching for answers on a lot of nights. And then, honestly, maybe the most underrated part is they just play hard. And this is something like the Raptors, you know, over the last few years, and they're not the only team, but they're probably the best example of it, have made me believe in certain intangibles that I used to think were BS over the last few years. And if you watch Sunday's game against the Lakers, it it, it kind of speaks to that, right? Like everyone talks about culture and te- guys go to new teams and talk about, oh, the culture here is great. And you always kind of wonder like, I don't know, it doesn't really mean anything. Like at the end of the day, the, the better basketball team, the guys with the better talent should just win. But you see a game like this and, and even the season the Raptors are having in Kawhi's wake, and it does make you realize how valuable things like, not just continuity, but culture really are right where the the Raptors are at a point right now and I don't think they're going to win the amount of titles the Spurs won but they are at a point right now where they've kind of built like Spurs East in a way where it's like they'll find undrafted guys or guys in the second round or late in the first round or they'll sign guys and for whatever reason they can just plug them in and it fits and it works and those guys look good and they don't necessarily look like superstars but they look so perfect for the roles that the Raptors believe they can carve out that matters you know that matters over this long slog of a regular season and that matters when you're trying to make up for the loss of a guy like Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka so I expect them to fall off a bit without those guys and obviously they're not going to look as much like world beaters as they did Sunday in LA they may very well just get their asses handed to them Monday in LA by the Clippers but I think you know just like reports of their demise were greatly exaggerated when Kawhi and Danny Green left they're also greatly exaggerated with Kyle Lowry and Serge Ibaka dealing with injuries. This is still a very good basketball team. It absolutely is. And they're just going to have to keep getting quality production deep in their bench because they don't have a ton of depth. And they, specifically, they don't have a ton of depth at the positions where they just suffered injuries. You know, they were already struggling to to cobble together backup point guard minutes, which is why Lowry and Van Vliet's minutes have been so high through the early part of this season. And... 
without Ibaka there, it's really going to be contingent on Chris Boucher maintaining a high level of play for them to have quality backup center production. You know, Marc Gasol is, can't jump at all. Like, is really barely getting off the ground. And that was already sort of the case, but he looks more sluggish even than he did last season. And as, as much as he still brings value as a rim protector, offensively, he's been close to a zero so far this season. And uh, Ibaka had been huge for them as far as giving them offensive production from the center spot. And they're going to need that from Boucher. So we'll see if he can give that to them. We'll see if Terrence Davis can continue to give them backcourt production. And if Hollis Jefferson can, can give them something in the front court. It was really nice to see him finally get some burn and play as well as he did. More than anything, it's going to be up to, I think, the core guys uh, in Van Vliet, Siakam, and Ananobi to keep carrying this thing. And they've done an unbelievable job so far. Obviously, the responsibility placed on those guys is only heightened in the wake of these injuries. But I've seen nothing that would lead me to believe that they're not going to be capable uh, of at least doing a passable job of carrying the Raptors through this. Yeah, and everything we've seen from from the defending champs through the first nine games of the season... Just kind of speaks to why I came into the season still thinking that the ceiling, if things broke right for this team, could still be getting back to the finals and not winning a championship, but potentially getting out of the East because I really do think they they will find ways to solve problems that even teams like Milwaukee and Philadelphia could provide in a seven game series. And I guess my big takeaway from this, and we're going to talk about the Celtics in a second, so will tie them into this to me philly and milwaukee are still very much the teams to beat in the east and i would consider them very likely to be the last two teams standing but if you're asking me is the gap between them and the next tier in the conference as wide as i expected it to be coming into the season absolutely not and you know between the raptors and the celtics and the heat who we talked about last week I think it's going to be pretty competitive at the top of the conference. And honestly, if Oladipo manages to make it back at full strength with his burst fully intact, which admittedly is a huge if, but if he does, then I think the Pacers can probably hang as well. Yeah, Brogdon and Sabonis look great, especially in the, like, the last week and a half after that brutal yeah. start. They haven't played anyone good is the only They've thing. Got, like, had a very they are in dire need of a measuring stick game, I think. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, those guys have looked great. The Celtics, I'd like to see them have a measuring stick game as well. They also, I believe they have like the third or fourth easiest schedule so far, but it's early, so there's a lot of noise in there. And listen, They've beaten the Bucks and the Raptors. I was going to say, they did beat the Bucks, and they beat the Raptors in a really weird game where they ended up with like 30 more shots because of the Raptors <laughs> turning the ball over. And, and, and 21 offense. Right, defense. so credit to the Celtics because they had a hand in that. The Celtics have the number one net rating in the league right now. They're the best overall record. Top five on both sides of the ball. Top five on both sides of the ball, which this is a team that we came into the year thinking, all right, they'll be able to score, but how in God's name are they going to defend with that rotation of big men they've got there? And even like Kemba at the point of attack, they've made it work. Now, the downside here is that Gordon Hayward, who looked like he was rediscovering his straight-up all-star form, like not just rounding slowly back into shape. He looked like a potential all-star again fractures his hand on the weekend i don't think they've announced yet how long he's going to be out i think he's getting tests on it today and right, they'll decide so. what the timetable is going to um, be losing him is a pretty big blow given how important he's been to this start what do you make of them do you believe in them as a potential contender do you think they're- i kind of still think that they need to play the trade market a little bit if they want to 
be considered a legit contender, but I don't know. Like, it's not like they're doing anything that feels especially unsustainable right now. I guess the big thing for me is they haven't, you know, aside from that Philly game on opening night where they got beaten pretty badly, they haven't really gone up against a dominant front line. So their lack of size and depth up front hasn't exactly been tested. But their answer to not really having that many quality big men is to just not really play traditional big men. And honestly, Robert Williams has looked awesome. Like he is so bouncy and always seems to be in the right spot. He's averaging 2.6 steals and 3.9 blocks per 36 minutes. Even Tice has looked pretty decent. Like he's also racking up a ton of blocks, but he can also kind of get out on the floor and defend a little bit on the perimeter. And so they're making it work. And they're also just downsizing a ton where, you know, they're relying on their wings or um, in Marcus Smart's case, their point guard to guard up a position or two or three or four. Like Marcus Smart is often guarding fours and fives in crunch time. And that just allows them to play super small. And they've played... 54 minutes with Tatum as the tallest guy on the floor and they have an 83.6 defensive rating uh, and a 23.8 net rating in those minutes so they've made it work and I think that's where they might really feel the Hayward absence because they now no longer really have the the wings to kind of fill things in and so without him, like if you want to go small, as opposed to giving those minutes to the traditional bigs that they have, they're looking at playing, I don't know, Brad Wanamaker, Semi Ojale, or Javante Green to, to kind of fill that in. So I assume that a bunch of those minutes are going to go to their bigs. But I, I would also assume that when Cantor is ready to come back, like he's going to be coming off the bench probably in a limited role because they've figured out how to cobble together minutes at the five uh, that have been really effective so far. Yeah, I agree with you. I think out of all the five teams in the East that I think have like an outside chance at least to come out of the conference, I still think I'd put the Celtics at five because of the front court depth issues. And I think out of those five teams, they are the team most in need of some sort of midseason trade if they actually have those kinds of aspirations like in the short term for this year. One thing I wanted to mention was Jason Tatum is having a really kind of sneaky good start to the year. And what I mean by that is you look at his numbers... You know, he's averaging 21 points per game on an effective field goal percentage, over 51, seven and a half rebounds, couple assists, almost two steals. You'd be like, oh, what's sneaky about that? That's just good on the best, the team with the best record in the league. Well, it's because if you actually look at his shooting numbers, there's a lot of room for improvement. And what, like, he's done a good job doing what he said he was going to do, which is cut down on the long two. So last year, this is basketball reference data, last year, Actually, his first two years, you're looking at like 16 to 19% of his field goal attempts came from long two range. He's cut that down to under 9% last year. So as he said he was going to do, he's been smarter about his shot selection. Here's the thing. Within three feet of the rim, a guy that shot 68% last year is down to 54. Within three to 10 feet, a guy that was like 32% last year down to 26%. He's obviously shooting better from three, but still, even so, like 10 to 16 feet, not really long two, more mid-range. He's usually in the 43% range. This year, he's down at 31%. So he's putting up like a really good season with solid efficiency, despite shooting well below his usual percentages in most spots on the floor. If he just brings those numbers up to what he usually shoots, 
we could be talking about like a 24, 25 point per game guy on great efficiency. Yeah, I mean, assuming that his three-point shooting keeps right. up at the level it's but been at, which is pretty ridiculous so far. It's at 44%, but I'd, I'd honestly say his three-point shooting, a guy who's been a career 40% three-point shooter being at 44, seems a lot more sustainable than a guy who's been as efficient as he's been within like 10 feet of the bucket shooting this poorly. Yeah, the Celtics offense is like kind of weird in that like their proportion of pull-up jumpers to catch-and-shoot jumpers is, is fairly skewed toward the pull-up jumpers, but... They are better at shooting pull-up jumpers than they are at spot-ups, which is pretty rare. A lot of that's driven by Kemba, who's just, you know, one of the best pull-up three-point shooters in the league in terms of volume and efficiency. So it's working for them right now. I don't know how sustainable that's going to be. I would like to see them scale back some of the pull-up jump shooting in favor of more catch-and-shoot. And especially with Tatum, and I agree with everything you said about him, but he is still taking probably a few too many pull-up mid-range jumpers. Um, I think he's taking the same number per game as he was last season, and he's he's shooting them at 31%. So uh, I I think there's still room for improvement as far as just like excising those and making more of an attempt to to get to the free throw line, something he's still not doing very often. But they're another team whose defense, I think, is fueling their offense because they've been really good in transition. And defensively, it's just kind of classic Brad Stevens team type of stuff. They're buzzing around, scrambling, stunting, helping and recovering and doing a really good job collapsing at the rim. And they, despite their lack of size up front, are one of the best teams in the league uh, in terms of opponent field goal percentage in the restricted area. So uh, I don't think that too much of it feels unsustainable to me. You know, we'll see how they do with this Hayward injury, and, and he had been a big part of their success so far. But I think if there was one sort of area where they could afford to lose a little bit of depth uh, for some period of time, it was definitely on the wing. So... I think they'll be okay, and hopefully he doesn't have to miss too much time because he, he really had been playing fantastic basketball. And uh, I think with the right trade, you know, some way that they can bolster their front court, they definitely can jump into that mix uh, as a contender in the East. Yeah, their their next couple of games are at home against Dallas and Washington. They should at least, they should be able to get a split from that. Then it gets a little concerning. They go on the road for five games at Golden State, at Sacramento, at Phoenix, at the Clippers, at Denver. If Hayward's out long-term, it could get pretty dicey here pretty quickly. Uh, a team who it's already gotten pretty dicey for, the Portland Trailblazers. You know I've said so many times over the last year and a half on this show that when everyone was counting this team out, I just kept saying, like, like at what point do you just accept this team's floor is like 45 to 50 wins, Dame and CJ are going to show up, then they'll probably surprise you in the playoffs, but they're at least going to be there and like have a chance to get to the second round. This seems like the year, I know it's early, that you might be right in that they've just kind of reached the end of the road here and this is what they are and and they're in the down swing of this cycle because they have not looked good. They've, they don't look like a playoff team right now. Yeah, I mean, they're just really missing Nurkic. I, I don't know if it's much more complicated than that, but he was just such an important part of their offense last year and their offense is still fine. They're 10th in the league, but they're being propped up by just an incandescent stretch from Damian Lillard. And I don't know if he can keep that up. And presumably McCollum will be better because he's had a really miserable start. 46% true shooting right now, which is gross. But you can see it in just how their offense is oriented. And a big part of their offense last year, which was top five in the league, was that they had kind of de-emphasized the pick and roll a little bit. And specifically not had to rely so much on Lillard finishing possessions as the pick-and-roll ball handler. 
And if you look at their numbers this season, their percentage of possessions that are being finished by the pick-and-roll ball handler have spiked by over 10%. And all the stuff that they were doing last year with Nurkic controlling the ball at the top of the key, spotting cutters, pivoting into dribble handoffs, all the great stuff that he was doing to open up and diversify their offense has just fallen by the wayside because Whiteside can't do that stuff. And he is just not a great pick-and-roll big man. You know, whether it's catching the ball on the roll or even setting screens in the first place. So they have just become so much more dependent on what Lillard can do off of screens. Fortunately for them, he's done an unbelievable job of that so far. And funny enough, only the Celtics have been more efficient when finishing plays with the pick and roll ball handler. But again, like Lillard needs more help. And he dropped 60 points in a loss to the Nets on Friday, which is not something you're used to seeing from this team. Like that's what you are used to seeing from Kemba Walker on the Hornets the past few years. And yeah, I can see it's making you sick. Uh, so I, I, I don't know. He, he just needs more help right now. And we, we've talked about where they need help. And the biggest spot to me, as I said before the season started, is they just need like another four and that that is especially dire now with zach collins being injured and he's out for i think at least six weeks right so they were already stuck for fours i didn't even like the fact that collins had to play the four because i felt like he was out of position there but at least he could do a credible job of guarding opposing power forwards and now they have nobody who could do that they're starting you know mario hazonia anthony tolliver or rodney hood at that spot and getting carved up by opposing power forwards. Like Eric Paschal carved them up. And I like Eric Paschal. Like I think I said that he was the third best player on the Warriors a couple weeks ago. But he should not be going for 36 and 13 against a team that fancies itself a contender. And even Jabari Parker lit them up for 27 and 11 last night. Like they need some reinforcements at that spot. And I've started to think, like we talked about Kevin Love and Gallo as guys they might go and get to help them. I kind of started to think that maybe they should focus more on getting like a defensive forward. Like if they could find a way to get Paul Millsap somehow. Covington is a name I throw out a lot. Aaron Gordon, um, maybe even Otto Porter, if the Bulls continue to sink. Like somebody like that who can help them defend opposing forwards. You know what would be like a perfect guy? Who's guy their rivals got this summer is Jeremy Grant. Yeah, but you know, one hundred percent. Yeah, because he's and not like a, a, a zero on the offensive end. He can shoot and stretch the floor, but he brings a lot of defensive versatility and value. And yeah, they definitely need that in general, but from the four spot especially. The problem is obviously in all these theoretical trade scenarios for them. Whiteside is the salary they use to send out, but with Collins and Nurkic both on the shelf, they can't afford to trade Whiteside right now. So either they have to wait until both of those guys get back to think about moving Whiteside, or maybe they look to deal Bazemore because he's got a pretty big salary that could work as ballast in a trade like that. But then the marginal upgrade is just smaller because they actually need the defense and spacing that he brings on the wing. So I don't know how much that moves the needle for them. Yeah, the Zach Collins injury hurts them. I mean, it would have hurt them regardless, but without Nurkic already, and now you're relying on Hassan Whiteside, which you know, you'll get one game a week from Hassan Whiteside where you think, whoa got something here and then you'll get the two or three games a week where you realize the guy's basketball IQ is comically non-existent Uh, though I will say that Shaq was it Shaq or Barkley I think it was Barkley who made the joke on Thursday night on NBA on TNT that because I think Kenny Smith asked the two big guys 
do you think Hassan Whiteside is even aware of what his strengths and weaknesses are? And then I think it was Barkley who said his strength is going to the bank every week to like steal money from Blazers. <laughs> and I will say, look, I, I rail uh, against Whiteside a lot because I think, again, his basketball IQ is not very high. And look, I call guys clowns all the time. I, you know, I was just ripping on Steve Mills. Criticism is fair, honestly, and it's fine to say that a guy is overpaid in terms of like his value on the court and whatever, but I always find it like really weird and and way beyond harsh when guys talk about professional athletes like stealing money because they're having a bad year or they're not worth their contract cuz like I, look, I know it's all fun and games and it's a joke, but at the same time that just like seems ridiculous. Hassan Whiteside is getting paid what he's getting paid because at least one out of 30 NBA teams decided they thought he was worth that money. And so you can argue whether he's living up to that contract. You can argue um, what the team was thinking when they gave him that contract or what another team was thinking when they traded for a guy on that contract. But to make the joke that a guy's like stealing money, it's like, nah, man. Like, what did you want the guy to do? Be like, you know what? I don't actually think I'm worth this. So how about you give me a little less? Like, get out of here. And Whiteside, it's not like he's been a zero either. Like, he has, as much as his pick-and-roll defense can be suspect at times, and he doesn't bring you a whole lot of skill on the short roll, and he occasionally, you know, makes questionable decisions in general. Like, he's he's still giving you 15 points a game. He's done great work on the glass, especially the offensive glass. Like, the, you know, the, he he definitely has value to this Blazers team. And I don't know what more they could have asked for as just somebody to be a stopgap replacement for Nurkic. Like, they were never going to get somebody who was going to be able to give them what Nurkic gave them. So I don't put that on Whiteside's shoulders. It's not his fault that he's not as good as Yusuf Nurkic. I think that he's trying, and and he's giving them what he can give them right now. And And we should just take a minute to appreciate what Lillard is doing also because like I mentioned I thought Lowry had been the second best point guard in the league so far to me Lillard has been the best and I don't think it's been particularly close like his he's not even necessarily doing anything differently than he's done the past few years he's just doing everything better the way that he's shooting his playmaking the way that he's splitting double teams like he is scoring at the basket in a way that he never has before both in terms of volume and his finishing there He's just been absolutely unbelievable. And that, that's really what makes it such a shame that the Blazers are four and six right now because it seems like they're wasting this start from him. Yeah. And, you know, four and six in the West. Like the, the Blazers have recovered from slow starts before. And if they get Nurkic back, they can recover. They're capable of it. But they go nuts in the second half every yeah, single year. They're going to go on some weird streak that doesn't make any sense in January and be like fifth place by the time the playoffs roll around. But for real, the four and six in the West given how tight it's always been and again how tight it looks this year where like I don't know right now I'd say other than like the Warriors the Grizzlies the Pelicans I guess the Kings and the Thunder but I don't know even the Kings and Thunder still have a chance to get back in the race we're looking at a 10 to 12 team race again in the West and if you bury yourself with a bad start you know Nurkic isn't coming back that soon that you can count on that Collins is down now you're four and six when Dame is playing like this you know, he's not going to play like this much longer because it's humanly impossible to do so. Yeah. So I, I would definitely be worried if I'm a Blazers fan about whether this team can even make the playoffs. They need way more from McCollum. Yeah. And that's he's been the biggest culprit, I think, and the guy that they could reasonably have expected a lot more from who hasn't, isn't providing it right now. Um, Avery Simons has looked great. Yeah. Like, he's got a 
beautiful looking shot. He's been unbelievable finishing at the rim. Defense maybe still a work in progress, but he's a solid player and they're going to need him to keep it up yeah. um, if, if they want to get back in the race for sure. They're going to need him to keep it up and then, you know, to get back in the race. But also if they are looking at a midseason trade, you know, I, I don't, they shouldn't get rid of him, but they, I just don't, yeah, they don't have enough young talent. Right. I don't think to think about parting with him. Agreed. But at the same time, you know, we've seen teams get desperate before and, and if they do get desperate, you know, and talking from a pure asset standpoint because they're not getting rid of Dave or CJ, I yeah. think. No, but they have all their picks, and I think they would definitely look to go that route before thinking about trading Simons. And, like, maybe, you know, Nas Little, the guy they drafted in the first round this year, is somebody that it, another team would be interested in. Um, I think they would go that route before they thought about trading Simons because they seem to really love him. Yeah, I think for them to move Simons, it would have to be in a deal that puts them in the, like contender stratosphere 100 percent, and I, I don't know if that deal is yeah. out there especially when they're playing like this yeah all right well another pod in the books another insane nba weekend in the books and who knows what kind of uh thc related <laughs> don't eat edibles folks yeah i'm telling don't eat you edibles. or at least just know how you're dosing yourselves because yeah try not to trip out dangerous on a plane no matter how fun it sounds in uh drake bangers all right, and other than that, I think that's the only advice we've got for you. For Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo, Pound the Rock. <laughs> <laughs>